just outside the metropolis of Lineville, Alabama, halfway between Ashland and Weedowie, and just a little bit north of Ophelia, is an institute for reverse missionary work known as CFET, Servants in Faith and Technology. Instead of sending people overseas to help people in need, CFAT hosts community leaders from around the world, leaders who bring with them their particular problems to Lineville, where with the help of local scientists, engineers, teachers, agronomists, they explore what it will take to improve the lives of their people back home. But because CFAT hosts so many people from lots of different places, they also serve as a place where independent missionaries and mission teams from nearby churches and other organizations can come together and experience at least a little taste of what life might be like in a different culture. And I can tell you firsthand how jarring and bitter that taste can be. A few years after I was ordained, I helped chaperone a group of youth at CFET for a spring break retreat. None of us was going on a mission trip, but we wanted to experience a little bit of what mission and that sort of work might be like across the ocean. So while we were at CFAT, the staff led us on a hike through the woods to the Global Village. It was a tiny makeshift hamlet complete with a dirt road right through the center of town. Each side of the road was lined with uh, tin-roofed lean-tos. One of them was a tiny marketplace. There were several villagers around the place, and also a rather cantankerous policeman was there. Our group was split up into teams, and we were told that our dinner that night would consist only of what our team would be able to acquire from the local villagers. At first, this seemed like a kind of fun game, a, a sort of adventure, something that would test, would challenge our ingenuity and creativity, and certainly our pride, and probably our persistence as well. But quickly, things became a lot more difficult than any of us anticipated. At one point, our team was offering to do some manual labor in exchange for some tortillas when some of the staff who were posing as residents stole our sleeping bags, leaving us without any protection through a pretty chilly March night ahead. When I complained to the policeman, though, explaining that what had happened was a crime and that he needed to do something about it, he locked me up in jail for questioning his authority. But when the policeman wasn't looking, I snuck out of jail, but was dismayed to discover that our youth, who hadn't been given the tortillas they had been promised, were now pretending to sell drugs in order to scrounge together enough food for the night. But before I could intervene and say, we can't have that, one of the youth stole a backpack from one of the staff members who had tucked it in a hideaway place where the staff member thought it would be safe. But when the youth tried to trade that bag for some food, we were all told that the staff bags were off limits. Well, if the staff bags are off limits, I said, then shouldn't our sleeping bags be off limits as well? 
but I must have raised my voice in a little too enthusiastic and confrontational a way because I was then re-arrested. And this time I was given a really stern warning by that policeman, so stern that I could not tell whether the person speaking to me was the policeman from the village or the staff member from CFAT who was worried that I might take matters into my own hands. Now the whole episode was designed to teach the youth that in other parts of the world, people don't always get justice the way we get justice. That sometimes good, honest, hard-working people don't get what they deserve and there's nothing you can do about it. But the rage I felt in that exercise meant that I was the person who needed to learn that lesson the most. I understood how the game was supposed to work. I could see through what was being done. But when it was the youth on my team, the teenagers whose welfare I was responsible for, who weren't going to get anything to eat that night and were going to have to sleep out under the stars without their sleeping bags, well, I lost it. There was nothing. There was nothing I could do to get what was right for my team to get what should have belonged to us, what was ours. And I snapped. What a first world privileged response that was to get angry the way I did. And all it got me was thrown back in jail. But you know, you don't have to go across the ocean or even to Lineville, Alabama to find people whose cries for justice fall upon deaf ears. They're all around us. They're our neighbors. Sometimes they're our coworkers. People like that work hard and follow all the rules and do their best and still they don't get what they deserve and there's nothing they can do about it. They've asked for help. They've filed their complaints. They've called the authorities. They've done everything they've been asked to do and still nothing. And they have no earthly reason to believe that anything will ever change, and yet they keep on trying. And it's their experience and their identity that help us understand this parable that Jesus tells us today. Despite Luke's editorial introduction, this story of the widow and the unjust judge probably has less to do with praying always and more to do with not losing hope. To Jesus' hearers, this parable would have sounded utterly ridiculous. So ridiculous you could almost not help but to laugh to hear Jesus tell it. In a certain city, Jesus says, there was a judge a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. You can't make it any more ridiculous than that to describe a judge, the arbiter of justice, as someone who has no concern for human laws or for divine statutes. And in this judge's court is a widow, a widow who just doesn't know how to quit. She's a widow, which means that she is completely powerless, utterly dependent upon the others for her survival. Her late husband's property would not have passed to her, of course, 
But if she were lucky enough to have a son, she might be cared for in that son's household. But if she didn't have a generous and compassionate son, she could perhaps return to her father's family, but only if her late husband's relatives were willing to return her dowry to them in order that they might have enough money to care for her in the long term. Otherwise, this widow would subsist only on the charity of passers-by who might throw her a coin or two out of pity. And the fact that this widow is standing before this unjust judge lets us know that she really has no other options. Grant me justice against my opponent, she says to the judge over and over and over again. This judge was her only hope. Yet hope was something he didn't want to give. There was no one to plead her case, no one to take up for her or stand beside her. Only if the judge happened to be faithful, the sort of judge who would care about what God wanted or what the community thought was right, only that sort of judge would grant her her request. But Jesus' exaggerated description of this judge's callousness lets us know that there's no way this judge is going to give in because of what the widow asks. As the story stands, there's no reason to expect anything to ever change. This widow has no power, and this judge has no pity. Nothing and no one can make a difference. But then Jesus surprises us with a twist as absurd as the introduction to the story. Just when the audience knows that the story cannot possibly have a happy ending, Jesus gives this helpless woman the strange power of annoyance. The judge uses a word that literally means to strike me under the eye as if with a fist, to say something like, I'd better give this widow her justice or else she might annoy me to death. In this powerless widow, suddenly we discover a new sort of subversive power, a power that doesn't depend on her physical ability or her relationships or her money, but instead that depends only upon her refusal to give up. Hear what the unjust judge says, Jesus tells us. Even when no one could see it coming, Even when everyone was sure that the judge would never give in to the widow's request, her persistence, her refusal to give up works. How much more, therefore, should we expect our God, a God who is just and who does hear the cries of God's people who lift their voices to God day and night, how much more should we expect our God to save those in distress? Our God is nothing like the unjust judge. And yet, how quickly do we lose hope when the justice we seek for ourselves or for someone else is delayed even a little bit? Jesus asks us to remember what people around us cannot afford to forget. 
that even when it feels like nothing will ever change, we still have a reason to hope because we belong to God. The persistence of the powerless shows us what it means to have faith, not faith in the institutions of the world, but faith in the God whose justice and righteousness will triumph over those institutions. The unbroken and unbreakable witness of people like that, that witness is what teaches us not to lose heart. Do we believe in the God who brought God's people out of Egypt? Don't we believe in the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead? If that is our God, we cannot lose hope. If that is our God, we know how things will work out. If that is our God, we must press on for the sake of those who are denied justice in this world not because we have the power in ourselves to pull down the mighty from their thrones, but because we belong to the one who does, to the God who has promised to do just that, to the God who hears the cries of those in need and rescues them, the God to whom all of us belong. Thanks be to that God. Amen.